Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers Thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I'm a small business owner, and I believe that this is a great tool for other small business owners. In small businesses, you need to create a team. And if you're starting by yourself, Constant Contact can be the team that you need. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by the 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. From where we are in Africa, we would want the world out there to understand that we are equally important that our lives also matter. We are just on the front line as much as everyone else is. We are all competing for a limited supply. Vaccine nationalism, we anticipated part of that, but we didn't anticipate that it will go to the extent as, as we see it. It's uh, useless that you have a coverage of 100% in one rich country. And then in the following day, you have importation of new variants. So all your effort you have done is become useless. We saw this with HIV. People living in richer countries got access to HIV medication 10 years before people living in, in Africa with, with HIV got access. And that lag led to 12 million extra deaths that were preventable because there was treatment that existed that could have prevented these deaths. The fact that we haven't learned those lessons and we're seeing this playing out again is a global failure. Welcome to the Global Goals Cast, the podcast that explores how we can change the world. In this episode, the vaccine rollout is a moral catastrophe. 
Are we vaccinating the wrong people in the wrong places? Are we potentially making this pandemic even worse? Vaccinating all the adults in the US or the UK before we have even vaccinated healthcare workers in Africa is bad health policy and wildly unfair. Health officials say that no one is safe until everyone is safe. But the high-income world isn't acting like they really believe it. Not at all. In fact, the opposite. Many political leaders in the developed world have made it a test of their competence that they will get all of their own people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I certainly understand that desire to protect your own people, of course. But it is turning into vaccine nationalism. And that can really have dangerous results. We will look at what's gone wrong with the vaccine rollout and what it will take to set it right. But first, this message. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. We believe in starting with the women and programs within our organization. They are best advocates to tell our story and demonstrate our ongoing commitment to positive change. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world in which the digital economy works for everyone, everywhere. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music. Welcome back. I'm Claudia Romo Edelman. And I'm Edie Lush. Claudia, can you believe we have been living with COVID-19 for more than a year now? I think we have lost so much. I know, and it must be really painful to think about your mom. I know, I miss her every day, every day. And I also know that I am just one of the millions of people and families who have lost their loved ones around the world. We have all lost so much. We as a world, we have learned so much. Look at what we were able to do, the vaccines against COVID-19. The World Health Organization, IRI, declared the global pandemic on March 11, 2020, merely a year ago. But by December, several new vaccines were created and tested. And that's amazing. That's unprecedented in the pace that we have done that. But our scientists did better at creating these vaccines than I think our leaders are doing in distributing them. That's right, Claudia. It's only been three months since the first vaccinations, but already we can see the unfair pattern. A handful of rich countries are well on the way to protecting their entire population, while most of the poor world has yet to receive a single dose. We want to really understand what is happening. So for this episode, we spoke to medical advocates in the rich world, doctors at the heart of the global health system, and to frontline medical workers in Africa. Claudia, do you remember Emma in Gaza? Mm -hmm. We spoke to her last April about her work trying to protect the poorest communities in Kenya from the pandemic. So we went back to find out how things have gone. So Emma, where are you today? I'm in Nairobi, capital city of Kenya. And how is it there? Everyone is adapting to probably just living with COVID. A few months into the pandemic, the reality struck that this is really huge. People lost jobs. So that brings me to the scary part. As a frontline healthcare worker, at first I was very curious. I was willing to help 
I felt like I am in control. I need to take charge. I need to take center stage to save lives. But again, with time, healthcare workers started dying. We went out of stock for commodities. Companies started shutting down and even scaling down, even in healthcare facilities. Personally, I got COVID-19. Wow, when was that? Around November. And what happened? I had contacts with, with someone who was having COVID. And I could tell you for real, during that time, the whole stigma issue and the uncertainty that comes, that came with probably not getting proper health care in a health facility setup was so rampant that I personally chose to do home isolation. Emma told us that when she got COVID, the public hospitals were too crowded and private hospitals were too expensive. So she isolated at home. And therefore I got actually not only to be at the forefront, but also to be in a patient's shoe and just get to experience how it felt like. And how sick did you get? How bad was your experience? It really was bad. It's not the kind of flu I had gotten before. It was a more severe flu. I would feel extremely tired. I would not wake up if not woken up from the bed. I would have a lot of breathlessness, even just by moving in my room or basking outside the house because I would send my family away every time I wanted to get out of my room. I had a lot of uh, hallucinations. The general malaise that comes with it is sets you into a very desperate mode. The thought of dying is so much on your mind. And this is not psychological, it was real life. You said you took one or two months off work. How long yeah. till you actually felt better? I think after one and a half months, only towards the end of the two months is when I, I regained. And that was my worry. I would call one of my colleagues, uh, but not working in Shofko, who was also sick, who had recuperated. And my worry was, would, will I ever stop feeling the way I am feeling? Being in that state, you are just like any other patient. You want to be visited. So the isolation makes things worse. Emma? Like millions of health workers all around the world have given their all going above and beyond. I was witnessing that with the nurses around my mother that were trying and risking and actually getting exposed to COVID. And then they got COVID and they had the health issue and the economical issue because like Emma, they cannot work for more than two months. This is really difficult and a harsh period for health workers. I was stunned to hear it. And honestly, I feel a little guilty too. There is an impression in the rich world, in the UK, that the pandemic hasn't been so bad in Africa. Absolutely, and that is just wrong, isn't it? Unfortunately, this is not the first time that that happens to Africa. Do you have a son? Do I remember that? Do you, can I hear your son in the background? Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how was that? To not be able to see him. I can't imagine not being able to see my kids. He did not understand that. So we would have a lot of video calls when he's in the house and he will not understand that. I bet. How old is he? Six years. 
And what's happened to his schooling? Has he been able to go back to school? The better part of 2020 in Kenya, schools were closed down and we were supposed to be on online education platforms. So since I was going to work every day, especially at the time when we were doing community health strategy, going to the communities and sensitizing the communities, I would work around the clock and uh, I was not able to catch up with the online education for him. And I remember I had to call a teacher to come and teach him at home. And it's not one of the best experiences. He changed schools because now he'd missed a whole year because he was not able to attend the online schooling. Emma realizes that her experience is common to women all across Kenya. In Kenya, it is the women who take care of their children. It's the women who make sure that there's some order in the house about how things are done. And therefore, when women are affected, then the whole family setup is also affected. Women in Kenya, (laughs) they sound like women all around the world. So it's been rough for Emma and for Kenya. Our editor, Mike Reskis, joined me to ask Emma about vaccines. There has been no clear communication on when vaccines will come. However, once they come, the people will be first priorities will be the healthcare workers. So you must see in the news that in some parts of the world, like in the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, large numbers of people are already being vaccinated. And yet your vaccine has not arrived yet. Of course, it scares us as healthcare workers, and especially in Nairobi, where the COVID-19 virus prevalence has been very high. We are really hoping that this could come much sooner. Did you feel that the world is paying enough attention to you in Kenya and to other countries that don't yet have the vaccine? Currently, no, because in fact, having the vaccines would be more sustainable than what we're trying to do right now. For instance, investing in more equipment, other prevention measures and treatment measures like isolation. Do you think there's a message that you in Africa would like to send to those of us in the rich world where we're plunging ahead, giving out vaccines, opening up big vaccine sites, and you're still waiting for your first dose? From where we are in Africa, we would want the world out there to understand that we are equally important, that our lives also matter. We are just on the front line as much as everyone else is. And it would be very relevant and important for equity to apply. I do not think that the other countries are more important than Africa. The situation in Africa is quite frightening. A new wave is sweeping through some countries much worse than earlier waves. One of those countries is Mozambique. We caught up with one of the country's top infectious disease doctors, Eduardo Samoguro, who is the co-chair of the National Task Force Responding to COVID-19. The epicenter is the capital of the country, is Maputo City, that accounts for roughly 80% of cases, admission and death. The pandemic has taken a dreadful toll on health workers. I know very well most of them because they were either my colleagues during the medical school or they were my students or they were my teachers. I think the exhaustion of the health professional 
that is definite one of the aspects that concern us most. Eduardo is waiting for the arrival of vaccine any day. I am optimistic. I think the emergence of new variants is increasing the awareness for the globe that no country is safe until all countries are safe. It's uh, useless that you have a coverage of 100% in one rich country, and then in the following day, you have importation of new variants for the other countries that you have 2% of coverage. So all your effort you have done is become useless because you have a new variant that is more transmissible, that reduced the efficacy, gets dominant, and then you have to readjust the new vaccine and then revaccinate people over again. So that is more work, more expensive than ensuring that all countries have access. I'm sorry, but it is not like we didn't see this coming, right? The world saw it coming, the writing was on the wall. Last April, the United Nations formed a partnership to raise money from high-income countries to send vaccines, which hadn't even been invented at that time. And when Emma and Eduardo talk about the vaccine, they are expecting it to come from COVAX. In theory, it is a great idea, and very much like earlier programs to distribute vaccines programs that you, Claudia, have been a part of. That's right, Edie. I've seen it firsthand. It works. Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccine Initiative, and the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Those are absolutely great models that work in order to produce like a war chest that everybody gets their funding in, and then they are distributing with a health equity at hand. And this time has been a little bit different for two reasons. First, raising money from higher income countries has taken time in the middle of the worst economic downturn in 150 years. And second, maybe even more important, no amount of money can buy vaccines that haven't yet been manufactured. Which is where this has gotten really strange because many of those high income countries have contributed to buying vaccines for poorer countries, right? But then, they have bought up all the available vaccines themselves before the poor countries can get any. Which is why all adults in the UK will be offered at least a first dose by the end of July, while some countries may still be waiting for any vaccine at all. You went to the Vaccine Alliance to understand what happened, right, Edie? Yes, I spoke to Tabani Mafosa, a top executive at Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. So we know that the goal is to vaccinate 20% of the world's most vulnerable people and healthcare workers in low and middle income countries by the end of 2021. So can you tell me, are you still on track? We are still on track. I think that the first uh, pillar of being on track is whether we have uh, raised uh, enough money to procure those vaccines. I can confirm that we are doing very well on our fundraising space. We well on our way to raising 8.2 billion. Then the second uh, pillar is securing deals for vaccines. And we have secured deals of up to 2.1 uh, billion doses of vaccines. And that uh, takes us well over our target of 20%. I know from speaking with the WHO 
that there have been problems with supply. And of course, we've seen issues around vaccine nationalism in Europe between the EU and the UK. But I'd love to hear about your view of how the rollout looks compared to what you had hoped it might be. It was always a given that 2021 was going to be a supply constraint year. So that was not a surprise. We feel we were going to be starting just about now, but then there is the volumes issue. At some stage, it gets to be a zero-sum game because we are all competing for a limited supply. Vaccine nationalism, we anticipated part of that, but we didn't anticipate that it will go to the extent that we may have seen and to be as fierce as we see it. But we still think that in the broader scheme of things, the COVAX facility is still well-placed to be that mechanism that responds to, to the iniquities. So I wonder if you think the bar is too low. Vaccines could be described as the perfect example of a public good that the world needs. So I wonder if you think it's fair that where I am in the UK, it looks like all adults will be vaccinated by the end of July. But in many places, at least by the end of 2021, where in low and middle income countries, it's the vulnerable and healthcare workers. I would say the buy is smart as opposed to too low. It is smart because it is one that is considering the limited amount of resources that we have and saying, how can we use them for good? And how can we stretch them? The advanced market commitment is not a one-year initiative. It's an initiative that will stretch for years. But one has got to think a little bit more broadly here as well to recognize that uh, for low and middle-income countries, we are dependent on the developed world, which in itself has suffered significantly, both epidemiologically, but also from a fiscal perspective. And so if we are going to count on their resources to help us, we have got to use them in a smart and first manner. And I think the COVAX approach is a smart one. It will get us out of a critical phase, an acute phase, but also tap and use the ability of our generous donors in a way that they can cope. You can have a very high ambition that chokes your donors, then you achieve nothing by doing that as well. So I think it's still aggressive, it is still bold, and I think it is a smart one. So here's the situation. We have a shortage of vaccine and a challenge with high-income countries sharing what they have. Yep, Tabani made his case that the COVAX plan is working. But not everyone agrees. COVAX is failing and we need to maximise supplies. So they don't really have an answer for how that will happen. So I think the pressure will build. After the break, you'll hear this more radical answer for creating enough vaccine to protect the whole world. But first, here's Christina Cloverdance, Chief Sustainability Officer of MasterCard, our beloved sponsor. So MasterCard is one of the most recognized brands in the world, and therefore, we have a responsibility to lead from the front. We believe in starting with the women and programs within our organization. 
They are our best advocates to tell our story and demonstrate our ongoing commitment to positive change. We then turn our attention externally to our strategic partnerships with other corporates, esteemed institutions, governments, and influential women across multiple sectors. Women historically have earned less than men and may take a professional step back if they have children. So we conduct an annual company-wide salary review to ensure pay equity and encourage all new parents to use generous parental leave so that it's a common and accepted practice. We closed the gender pay gap where women earn $1 to every $1 earned by men. Recently introduced gender neutral parental leave offers a minimum of 16 weeks paid leave and for established professionals, we offer support and training and mentorship for leadership growth. Vitally important to have the programs that encourage women to relaunch or pivot their career. Welcome back, Edie. Happy International Women's Day. It's the International Women's Day. It was so great to hear about the work of MasterCard is doing toward gender equity. We really appreciate MasterCard. They've been with us from the very beginning of the Global Goalscast, and they are really rocking it for gender and inclusion. So this episode is about the pandemic, of course, but we are very conscious that the pandemic has set back the progress of women and girls all around the world. Absolutely. Globally, more than 20 hours more a week of work for every single woman that has been affected by the pandemic. So imagine adding to your workload just about 20 more hours a week. And that's that's just so much. And we made a real point to feature Emma at the top. And now we want to hear the voice of another strong woman. In fact, you heard her voice briefly just before the break. She is Roz Scores of Médecins Sans Frontières. How is my accent there, Claudia? Well, très bien, très bien. <laughs> Merci. Doctors Without Borders, which has been campaigning for years to get more equipment, treatments, and vaccines to poor countries. In some ways, what Roz is saying is that COVAX isn't enough and never has been. I think, firstly, it's a complete tragedy that we're seeing this happen again. The MSF Access campaign, access to medicines and health activists around the world have seen this scenario playing out again and again, multiple times with different diseases. We saw this with HIV, for example. People living in richer countries got access to HIV medication 10 years before people living in, in Africa with, with HIV got access. And that lag led to 12 million extra deaths that were preventable because there was treatment that existed that could have prevented these deaths. The fact that we haven't learned those lessons and we're seeing this playing out again is a global failure. And if nothing else, it should really show us that the system that we have that controls how medicines and health products are developed and then distributed and controlled globally is completely failing us. The way that we just give multinational profit-making, profit-prioritizing pharmaceutical companies complete control of which products get developed and then where gets access 
primarily based on who can pay the most is a system that is fundamentally failing. And I, I hope that one thing that comes out of this pandemic is that people start to see that failure and that that cannot continue because actually we're really not safe unless everyone is safe. There'll be this realisation that actually we do have to care about each other. All lives are as important and we have to put those lives above pharmaceutical profits. Okay, Claudia, that is the view of an advocate who's basically arguing that private capitalism will never produce public goods like the vaccine and share them equitably. The problem isn't COVAX, it's the system. And you've worked on this issue. So what do you think? It is right that we should be able to control pharma. It is right that the system should be more fair. But it's also very complex to ask one single industry to pay for the price of all of it and then also invest in innovation, in the research and development. You know, at the time of the Global Fund, what we were able to do because of the size of the funding that we were able to collect from all the countries all together, we had, you know, like the feet on the neck of pharma. They had to put their prices down, affordable medicine for everybody, you know, like from 40 pills and $40 that a person's life costed, it ended up actually being two pills and 40 cents. That was the amazing work that we were able to do by putting pressure into pharma so that we could get affordable medicine for all. Ross points out that part of the problem now is that the world isn't rallying around COVAX. We know that COVAX has suffered financially, but also in terms of the supply that it's been able to secure. And this is primarily because there was no requirement as part of COVAX for all governments and companies to procure and supply through COVAX. And so many countries and governments are going outside of COVAX and that's leaving low and middle income countries which are relying on COVAX to go without. So I know that MSF has come out in favor of a proposal from South Africa and India around the IP of the vaccines. Can you talk me through layman's language, what that proposal is and how it would work. This proposal is coming from South Africa and India and is now supported by over 100 countries, primarily from the global south. And it is a proposal to the World Trade Organization, which basically oversee intellectual property rights and law globally. They set the rules of the game, essentially, in terms of intellectual property protection. What this proposal is saying is that we need to waive intellectual property rights on COVID-19 medical technologies. So that includes vaccines, treatments, diagnostics, but also things like personal protective equipment, ventilators. What intellectual property rights do is that they basically provide a period of exclusivity or protection for the originator company for a set period of time, meaning that no other manufacturers can produce that product. And so basically that gives the originator company complete market exclusivity so they can charge whatever price they like and they completely control the market, including the supply. What they're saying is we can't have that in a pandemic. We can't have prices set by a handful of companies limiting available global supplies. This is completely unprecedented. Everyone needs access to these products at the same time. We need to maximize the available global supplies of these products. How likely is it to go through this proposal? 
It's now got support of over 100 countries, predominantly from the global south. And obviously, we're seeing opposition from most of the the rich countries, for example, the UK, the EU, the US, who have already secured their own access to COVID-19 vaccines. They're basically blocking this from going ahead. They're blocking other countries from being able to start producing their own supplies to save the lives of their own populations. Pharmaceutical companies are voluntarily offering licenses to make the vaccine. For example, COVAX delivered its first doses to Ghana, made under a license from AstraZeneca to an Indian manufacturer. But Roz says this voluntary approach isn't nearly good enough. None of these license agreements are public, so there's no transparency. And the detail of these is really important so that we can better understand who's actually going to get access to these products. We already know from a few leaked versions that the no profit commitment will actually come to an end at a point determined by AstraZeneca. And and, and in their contract, they included that would be July 2021. And so obviously that's very soon and the pandemic is not over and it's not up to them to decide that the pandemic is over. And after that period, they could increase the prices. We also know that Uganda is paying $7 a dose for this vaccine, whereas the EU is paying just over $3 a dose. It makes no sense, firstly, that a low-income country would be paying more than double for this vaccine, but also based on their no-profit pricing commitments, why are we seeing these price discrepancies around the world? If it's no-profit pricing, then why are we seeing such different prices? And they need to also prove that it's no-profit pricing by opening their books. There's a lot of challenges around relying on just the goodwill of pharmaceutical companies. And this is just one company that is following this approach. It's just AstraZeneca. There are a number of other companies like Moderna, Pfizer, who have made really clear that they intend to profit from this pandemic. Their vaccines are charged multiple times the price of the AstraZeneca product. Rose course of Medicine Sans Frontier. And even if you're not convinced about the solution of waiving intellectual property, there's no question that she described the challenge of supply. The vaccine distribution is the ultimate question of global health equity. We should expand here on two points. Roz is right that a lot of public money has gone into these vaccines, but there is no one size fits all. AstraZeneca and Oxford University took billions from the US, the EU and the UK, which is why they gave an Indian manufacturer, the Serum Institute of India, the right to make vaccine for COVAX. The first of these doses arrived in Ghana just the other day. But at the same time, the Serum Institute pleaded with poor countries to be patient because they had been instructed by the Indian government to prioritize making vaccine for India. Which brings up the second point. Breaking intellectual property will not in itself create more manufacturing capacity. Making vaccines is a very tricky, time-consuming business and risky. It has to be done well. In fact, manufacturing is probably more challenging than the research that invented the vaccines in the first place. Some public health experts get edgy about waiving the IP rights because they fear that it might lead to sloppy manufacturing. In the meantime, the shortage of vaccine is producing all kinds of problems, like Uganda paying twice as much as the EU for vaccine, I asked Tabani Mafosa about this. When countries come together and we pool their demand, we have the ability to influence the pricing. And so 
when we say COVAX is the main game in town for fair and equitable access, we really mean it. Because if you go out for bilateral deals and you are a small country, the vultures are going to catch you. Ross Gorse argues that the war on COVID-19 can't be fought by a voluntary army of drug companies. I mean, what we need is global agreement, global mechanisms to really ensure equitable access that are legally binding, basically, instead of these voluntary approaches where we just ask very nicely, please, pharmaceutical company, will you do the right thing? When obviously they primarily answer to shareholders. But Edie, demonizing the drug companies really doesn't address the biggest issue, vaccine nationalism. Many rich world leaders have made it a political goal to vaccinate their own people first. Of course you would, right? If you are running a country and your people in America, 500,000 people have died. That is World War I, II, Vietnam, all combined have less people dead than that. So you start wondering, like, do I really have the bandwidth to share my vaccinations with someone else? If you think about it, Edi, Germany being so open arms for migration and refugees and actually having such a fight politically to be humanitarian and open arms, they're closed arms right now because this is costing lives for their own people. President Macron, for example, tried to ease past by suggesting that rich countries donate 5% of their vaccine supply right now to poor countries. And vaccine supply is a crucial issue, but it's not the only issue, as Tabani Mafosa explained to me. What question haven't I asked? Somebody in your position is so much closer to the whole thing than I am, and I wonder what the world is missing at this point that's really important to think about. Miss Lash. <laughs> the question you probably haven't asked is, um, are the countries really ready? And I say that question because... You can take the horse to the water source, but you cannot drink for it. And while we can take the vaccines and the governments uh, can do their best to work with us to get vaccines where they need to get, we have seen a significant rise of misinformation and vaccine hesitancy. And so if you ask me what keeps me awake is that uh, after all this work of working with manufacturers, working with all our partners, to get vaccines to countries, you get them to Zimbabwe. And my mother, who's in Zimbabwe, says, I don't trust these vaccines, I can't have them. That's what scares me. The biggest challenge that my team and I are working on is making sure that vaccine confidence and trust is high. Yes, vaccine hesitancy is a big deal happening right now. And I can talk to you, Edie, for example, of what, what I see happening in the U.S. Hispanic community. The U.S. Hispanic community has a 50% drop in vaccines since COVID. And if you think about it, Edie, with the collapse of trust all across institutions, particularly media, the Latino community is suffering from fear and the Latinos are going to be the last ones to adhere and access the available vaccination that is in America. You mentioned fear. Another item on the tasting menu of fear is the stigma associated with having COVID, as Emma described to me. I have a colleague who has a flu right now. 
but would not want to test for COVID. Like they would rather not know that they have COVID. I also did not want anyone knowing that I had COVID. This is despite me being probably on the forefront. I'm sure even my organization will just want me to come out and talk about it and encourage people. But sometimes it is not that easy. Stigma is a big deal issue. I tell you, Edie, I live in New York, as you know, in Chinatown, next to Chinatown. The amount of racism and discrimination, uh, the amount of real uh, stigma towards Asians all together is something that I see in my day today. And yet, I think that what I learned really, Edie, in this episode, it is that it's very important to share and inform everyone. And Edie, this fear issue is real. I just came back to New York from Texas, where I was doing a relief campaign donating to more than 10,000 Latinos food, water and supplies, particularly for those affected by the winter storm. And while I was doing the food distribution to each of them, when I asked like, hey, are you interested in the vaccine? All of them pretty much had no information. They didn't know whether they, they could get it worth, could they get it, were they eligible or not? And it's very important for governments to understand this issue of health equity is doesn't happen only among countries. It happens within countries. And it's important to reach particularly those that have been the most affected and the most vulnerable. I would love to keep talking all day about this, but it is time for facts and actions. For our facts today, we have Dr. Siddhartha Datta from the World Health Organization, who says we can learn a lot from how the world conquered three previous epidemics. The entire effort made by the globe for smallpox eradication, it would never had reached its end should each country walk their own way or walk their own path. The world has shown it, and I think this will again will be proving it. We have to just look back into our pages of history to see what we have done. The other glaring example that we all see and we all have evidently seen is the polio eradication program where we have reached today. This was again where everybody came together for a country, for a zone, for a part of the world where they put their own resources, they put their time and their expertise to come along. So I think we have several such examples just to look into the pages of our history, not too past, to see what more can be done and what more should be done now, moving forward into tomorrow and the day after. President Macron has urged other rich countries to give 5% of their vaccine supplies to poor countries. So if you are a leader of a rich country listening to this podcast, that action is for you. <laughs> However, if you're one of our listeners and you want to support COVAX, you can do so by donating to Gavi, the Global Alliance of Vaccine Initiative. And their website is gavi.org, G-A-V-I.org. Whatever currency you donate in, TransferWise is waving up all fees up to $7 million in donations. And if that is not radical enough for you, here is a third action proposed by Ross Course from Medicines and Frontier. I mean, what we need is global mechanisms to really ensure equitable access that are legally binding, basically, instead of these voluntary approaches where we just ask very nicely, please, pharmaceutical company, will you do the right thing? When obviously they primarily answer to shareholders. I'm not saying they don't care at all about global health, 
just saying they're primarily answering to shareholders. To ask them to do the right thing is going to come with terms and conditions attached. So I think that the governments, particularly the rich countries that have put in over $10 billion of public money, taxpayers' money, to pay for the six front-runner COVID vaccines. They've paid for the research and development of those fully. They should be publicly owned. They should be global public goods. To stand up and say, this was our investment, this is our money, this does not belong to a pharmaceutical company. We are going to make it a global public good and there is not going to be intellectual property rights on this. So you're investing in manufacturing capacity in low and middle income countries, IP rights are not getting in the way. and. You're not only responding to this pandemic by scaling up supplies, but you're also helping to prepare for future pandemics because you're investing in that manufacturing capacity in other countries, which will be needed for now and the future. So that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it, subscribe and follow us on social media at Global Goalscast. And thank you so very much for this episode. If there's one episode that is current and is vital, it's this one. So if you can, share it with your friends. We have to do a lot of public health education so that people are not led by fear, but by action. And the action that we need to take is to get vaccinated. Thank you so much for being here. See you later. Global Goals Cast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Our operations director is Michelle Howard and our glorious volunteers, Amanda Friedland, Julia Lombardo, Stuart Zuckerman, and Daria Volova Lynch. And to our amazing social media experts, Liz and Barbie. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music, one of the world's leading production music companies, creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. This episode is brought to you by MasterCard, creating scalable solutions for sustainable and inclusive economic growth. Thanks also to CBS News Digital. The struggle is real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha is real. We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces bromeando y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando. La Lucha is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts.